2: Across the country, we're seeing an affordability issue when it comes to housing. But could an algorithm be responsible for apartment rents going up? The software called Yieldstar suggests daily prices for open units using data analytics. In some cases, the software suggests double-digit price increases. It even goes as far to suggest that landlords could get more revenue with a lower occupancy rate, but with increased rents. So how much is this software being used? In one Seattle neighborhood, 70% of apartments were overseen by 10 property managers all who use the pricing software. For more on how this algorithm could impact rising rents, we'll speak to Heather Vogel, reporter at ProPublica. So
3: the software is an algorithm that takes a bunch of different information. Some of it is specific to the apartment that is in question that needs a price on it. How many bedrooms are there? What's the floor plan? And then some more information about the property that it's located in. Things like what what kind of rents have they gotten in the past and what has the occupancy been and things like that. And then it, it sort of moves out a little further to gather some market data that is aggregated and anonymized. So it's not giving landlords specific information about what the guy next door is charging, but it will take that pricing information from you know, the broader neighborhood, the broader area, and it will feed that into this algorithm in order to come up with a suggested price that the landlord could set. And the algorithm is really shooting for a price that would maximize the amount of money the landlord is going to make. Sometimes that can mean perhaps a slightly lower occupancy than the landlord would have initially accepted or shot for. In order to achieve kind of a higher level of rent, a higher level of rent over time, maybe keeping rents at a higher level. So it's a it's a very complicated calculation that it's making, but that's basically what it's trying to do.
2: Yeah, and talking to landlords and and you know people that are using these this software, it seems like it's giving them. The confidence to raise the prices higher than they normally would. You know, a lot of times, you know, you had a ton of examples in the in the article, right? Let's say, um, you know, occupancy is low or something like that, and you're going to lower rent just to get more people in there, right? And the algorithm says, no, let's do it this other way. And so um, you even uh, talked about how some of the executives from RealPage were talking about how apartment rents had recently shot up about as much as 14.5%. And they're like, we would have never thought this would be happening. But this is kind of we're following the algorithm's lead. And this is what it's telling us to do.
3: Yeah, that's an example that we found where a couple of executives from this company that sells this software that used to be called Yieldstar and then they underwent a merger and bought their biggest competitor and they've renamed the software as AI Revenue Management. But it's still, I think people still refer to it as Yieldstar. But, you know, they were talking about You know, last year, there had been a period where rents had shot up like 14.5%, very dramatic increase over a short amount of time. And one of the executives said to the other, what role do you think the software has had in this increase? And the other executive said, I think that it's driving it because a human would be much more reluctant to raise rents that much over a single month.
2: Right. I think somebody said that, you know, leasing agents and all that had too much empathy. And, you know, the algorithm really takes a a lot of that out of it. And, you know, and in the advertising four-year-old star, they talk about how using this is going to help you outperform the market three to 7% in some cases. So, I mean, they're telling you just follow the lead of this thing. You know, what do people say as far as when you're talking about things like competition, when you're talking about just artificially inflating prices too much? Because I think even some of those execs said, yeah, well, You know, some of these price increases that are happening in the market overall is being driven by things like this uh, algorithm.
3: That's right. I mean, it's very hard to separate the impact of this algorithm from other effects of things like an increased demand from renters because people are being shut out of the home buyer market or there's not enough construction in your area for new units and and things like that. But at the same time, it is how RealPage is selling their software. They are promising a premium above what your competitors perhaps are making in revenue. And, you know, that translates into higher rents in many cases you know at least higher than what the market is charging potentially trying to pinpoint that is very difficult in data but i think that's kind of at the, the crux of the question here is whether rents are being pushed up above competitive levels mm-hmm. By this software and whether software is using information from all these different property managers who should be competing with each other and potentially, you know, even coordinating their pricing in a way that is not what should be happening.
2: Right. And according to the, to the way it used, I mean, you might not know the exact, you know, what a um, a competitor might be charging, but the algorithm is kind of, you know, it doesn't really matter. The algorithm is going to be suggesting what the price is going to be. And the old way, you know, it's funny that uh, you mentioned a couple of times, the old way of doing it is, you know, you just call a competitor and say, hey, you know, how much is this place uh, being leased for, et cetera, et cetera. And then you kind of write it down in a, in a notebook and ledger or whatever. And then that's kind of how you would make your determinations for your properties. And, you know, the software obviously eliminates the need for all that.
3: Exactly. It's, it's, it's sort of allowing you to process a much greater amount of information with a lot less manpower. Essentially, you don't need people making these calls or tracking competitor rents like that. at such a granular way.
2: And so who uses this software exactly? How many property managers do we know of that could be using this, right? Because if everybody's kind of on board, then you can kind of start making the case, oh, we see how the lack of competition is happening. You see how the prices are starting to be inflated kind of all together. So how many property managers do we know are in on this?
3: Well, you know, what I found that was most surprising perhaps was when I looked at a single zip code in Seattle where I was able to get a list of all the apartment units that were in that zip code in buildings with five or more units because those are the big multifamily buildings. And I found it was over 9,000 apartment units. And I had not only the number of units in each building, but also what the name of the property manager was for each of those buildings. So I kind of crunched the data and found that there were 10 property managers that were the biggest in zip code and that they were controlling 70% of those 9,000 units, wow. more than 9,000 units, which is amazing. And then when I went down the list one by one and sort of started, you know, looking into each of these property managers, I found out that every single one of them was using the RealPage software. So you get a sense of how, of what an impact in a specific market this software could have if they had that kind of penetration. And, and, and that was a floor. I mean, there could have been plenty of other... Smaller property managers, but you know, still decent size, but maybe without as many units as the top ten. Also using it, so it could, you know, it could have been more than that. Overall, RealPage says its client number has passed, I think, thirty-one thousand seven hundred clients. Now, those are people who are using all of its services. You know, are those are all, you know clients could be using different types of, they they offer quite a bit, a right. range of okay. services and property management. So it gives you an idea, but they have a very big customer base at this point.
2: And so then what happens with, uh, I, I guess, regulators, uh, you know, the administration, Biden administration, do they get involved in any of this stuff when they see rents going up and, uh, you know, something like this comes out? We're finding out that a high percentage of properties are being managed at least with this software and you know the burden on tenants right uh, you know their costs are constantly increasing on this and you had a couple examples in here where they said well you know right before the pandemic you know we're going to increase your rent by some 10% or so and you know the, uh, as i mentioned the, the burden obviously gets passed on to the tenants in there so is there anything be done on the, on the regulatory side or, or you know try to get these things under control
3: I think that that is an open question as to whether any of the antitrust regulators would be interested in asking questions about this software. That's not clear. You could The agencies that are, could be interested, it would be the Federal Trade Commission potentially, which has vowed to take a more active role in issues of anti-competitive behavior or also potentially the Department of Justice, which also has an anti trust mission
2: and for real page for their part on on all of this you know supporters of the software all that they say that you know they're not really causing or necessarily contributing to the affordability problem that's going on with rising rents uh, you know what what do they say for i guess in defense of the software and all the practices
3: That's absolutely right. They they say that their software could potentially, that it helps prevent rents from reaching unaffordable levels because it can detect a drop in demand very quickly, like those that happen seasonally at different points in the year. And it will recommend that the apartment lower its rent right away so that the unit isn't overpriced and and people aren't kind of scared away from it. In terms of the issue of whether there's any anti-competitive problem here, they say that they are using the private data that they're using or all of the data that they're using, they are using in a legally compliant way and that they believe that their software actually lowers or reduces the risk of any type of price collusion when compared to sort of the old methods of apartment managers potentially calling up all the other ones in the area and finding out what they're charging.
2: Heather Vogel, reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Finally for this week, AI art generators have just been unleashed on the public. These new text-to-image generators let you type in almost any phrase, and it will return you an image in various art styles. Dali 2 by OpenAI and Dream Studio by Stability AI are now open for anyone to use, and the results are a lot of fun. The AI interprets your words and creates fully original images, but there's still a lot of questions about how it works, copyright, and who owns the images. For more on what the future of AI art may hold, we'll speak to Joanna Stern, senior personal tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal.
4: As you mentioned, one of them is called Dolly 2, which is a play on Wall-E, right, from Pixar's animated film. And then... Salvador Dali, which is the surrealist artist. So the OpenAI company made this tool where, as you described, you put in any text you want or pretty much any text you want, and out comes a couple of seconds later, an image of what you've written. A couple of examples of ones that I have just sort of had a lot of fun with. I'm looking right now at a Speaking of being on a podcast, a monkey recording a podcast.
2: <laughs> I love that picture. I, yeah.
4: It's actually as a picture you looking like on the other side. <laughs> um, so out is the actual picture. It's an illustrated image. I'll try to describe it. It's sort of a, a little bit like a canvas painting of a monkey talking into a studio microphone and he's wearing blue headphones. And I got that image within a couple of seconds by just typing into my computer monkey recording a podcast. Yeah, and if and guys, no human was involved in making that image. Yeah, it was it, all artificial intelligence.
2: If you guys go to Joanna's piece on the Wall Street Journal, she put in a bunch of uh, pictures and videos and different things of all these prompts that she actually put in. So they're very, very fun to go look at. So I suggest you guys do. But let's get down to how these images are actually made. We know that these AI generators are fed a bunch of images. It's very categorized. And obviously, they use a lot of algorithms to figure this stuff out. But how do they create these fully original images?
4: The best way I had it explained to me, and as I explained it in both my video and the column, is that. The AI, the artificial intelligence sitting on the servers of OpenAI, which runs Dolly, or Stability AI, which runs the other service I touched on in my piece called Dream Studio, these AIs have been taught pretty much what everything looks like. And they've been taught that by looking at, as I say in the piece, flashcards. This is a great way to sort of explain it. When we teach kids what things are, we look at flashcards, an image of something, and then the word next to it. And so that's what the AI has been looking at. But it's been looking at hundreds and millions and hundreds of millions of these types of images. And so it's learned what pretty much anything looks like. So if you type in the word cup, it knows what a cup looks like. And then it uses a complex process called diffusion where it turns that, word. well, first it turns that word, it tries to explain, it tries to understand what that word cup means, right? It understands what a cup is. Then it uses this process called diffusion to turn a cloud of pixels, basically, into an image of what it thinks this cup should look like. And it's a very complex backend technology And it then allows you to put things together. So let's say a cup of coffee sitting on a desk. It knows what a desk looks like. And it knows that it has seen cups sitting on desks. And then you get an image that looks like a cup sitting on a desk.
2: One of the biggest questions that I saw swirling around when these things were, you know, in beta forms, not everybody had access to them yet was about copyrights and ownership with these images. And as you mentioned, right, you're describing a process to teach the machine what these things are. They're grabbing them from all over the internet. You know, what if that image they use was a copyrighted image beforehand, and then the image generator gives you something similar to that. So OpenAI for DALI 2 and Stability AI for Dream Studio, what do they say for their part, at least on, on the copyright? right side of things? And and who owns that image after it's been generated?
4: They're pretty clear about this, right? They say, when you've created this image, well, then it's your image. You've used our systems, but you now own this image to go do what you would like with it. OpenAI is more specific in the sense that it really is trying to, through its terms and services and its policies, to make those who share these images make people aware that this was an image generated by AI, try not to fool people into thinking, hey, that image you made is made by a real human. And so that's a really important part of this all. As we now start to see more and more AI art and images across the internet, how will we know if a human made it or AI made it? And that's sort of a gray area because the companies can't force people to do that. But in this case, OpenAI is definitely recommending that people do that. In the sense of, Where are the images coming from, the data sets of was that made from copyright images, right? Did those flashcards have copyrighted images? That's a big question area. Uh, Mm -hmm. OpenAI won't actually talk about or won't divulge what data set they are using of the images. They just say they are using hundreds of millions of images. Stability AI has been a little bit more open about that to say, yeah, they're using images they have gathered from across the Internet.
2: I mean, you're creating things as, uh, you know, you're using your your imagination to do all of this stuff. But the ownership of all this stuff is, you know, the other side of things, right? Because they're saying you can do with it whatever you want, but you can't really generate just anything. There are some limits. I think e 2 has a few more limits in place rather than uh, Dream Studio does. But they don't, uh, you know, on on Dolly 2 side, um, you can't uh, put images of uh, public figures or you can't do any explicit content. You know, obviously that protects everything else. So you can't get just about everything, but it, it is pretty open. Exactly,
4: exactly. I mean, one of the, my favorite images that I've made is Elon Musk holding a Twitter bird as a <laughs> pet, as you would expect he has, would have now. And I was able to only make that using Stability AI's Dream Studio. It, that image was made through there. But I can't make that in Dolly because Dolly does restrict the ability to use public figures in the prompts. Or you can type it in, but you will get an error or you'll get a message saying, we can't process this because it doesn't meet our, our guidelines. You can put names in. I put my name into Dolly, and out came a woman that does not look like me and does not really <laughs> even right. look human. But it is trying to prevent media manipulation and disinformation and deep fakes of popular public figures.
2: And this has been going on for a little bit of time. Obviously, they just opened both of these open to the the general public at large. So anybody can go in and sign up and do it. I suggest people do it because it's a lot of fun, as you've been saying. But right now... A lot of the images, I don't want to say crude, but, you know, they don't hold up to, you know, a a purely uh, a photographic image, something that was set up and done by a real photographer with real sets and real people and everything. You can kind of tell that it's kind of uh, an AI thing. It's not particularly perfect. And then again, you know, when you're putting these prompts into the machine, you know, it doesn't always give you exactly what you want. Sometimes it's a little hit and miss. Sometimes it's right in line with what kind of you were expecting in your mind. Sometimes not so much.
4: Totally. And that's the fun of it, I think, is there's just this thrill when you punch in that prompt. What are you going to get back? Is this going to be something that's great or is it going to be something that kind of looks a little sketchy and funny? I definitely suggest if you guys are using this at home, try putting in dogs, different types of (laughs) dog breeds, dogs (laughs) doing random things. You will get back funny and sometimes terrifying
2: things. I did that exactly with my dog. It was the first uh, set of probably about 20 images that I made. And I put a pillow on my dog's head and I uploaded that picture. And then he gave me back my dog with like a mushroom head. It was fun. I mean, we we're just laughing about that whole thing. And so the big open-ended question now, what is the future of AI art and these tools that are that we're getting now. We're seeing companies like Microsoft is a big supporter of uh, OpenAI's DALI 2, and they're going to start putting that into some of their search engine stuff, some of the stuff they're doing with Bing. So more companies are getting on board. A lot more people are starting to use it. What's the future of all this?
4: I think if there is a app or a website that you currently use to share content That might be Facebook, that might be Snapchat, that might be TikTok, that might be Instagram. This type of tool is coming for those apps. This is a fast, fun way to generate content. The big question is, what are going to be some of those restrictions? How do they prevent some of these tools from getting out of control? But these types of tools are absolutely coming to more and more of our fingertips. And the future of what we see is questioning Is that made by a human or is that made by
2: AI? Joanna Stern, Senior Personal Tech Columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive and iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.